Art can often seem like a luxury. If you're struggling to put food on the table or don't know where you'll be living next month, you might not have the time or the inclination to wander an art gallery, see a great play or read a hefty classic novel. You probably just want your pleasures cheap, quick and easy. No effort or enlightenment required, please. Just something to take my mind off real life for five minutes, please. And yet, in the hardest period of all, in wartime, specifically in the Second World War, in total war, art becomes hugely important. It's no longer just a painting behind red rope and glass. It's a symbol of the civilization your country is fighting to defend. It's no longer just a novel. It's a reminder of the landscape and the values which are at risk. It's no longer just music. It's a defiant symphony lifting the morale of a besieged and starving city. So whether it's Larry and Vivian replaying Nelson and Emma's love story, a breathless little song by Marilyn Monroe for the troops in Korea, or the awesome power of the Leningrad Symphony, art takes on new meanings in war and comes to symbolise the civilization we might lose. In this episode, we'll look at how Britain planned to protect its art and its symbols of civilization from nuclear attack. We'll start with the Second World War, from where most of our Cold War plans spring, and we'll look at how Britain's treasures were scattered across the country during that conflict, and how art was used to prop up morale. And then we'll move forward to see what the plans were for protecting those treasures in nuclear war. And we'll ask if there's any point saving paintings, crowns and sculptures when there's no one left to look at them. This is the Atomic Hobo and I'm Julie McDowell. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war with Germany. One of the first things which happened after Britain declared war in Germany was that most public entertainment was stopped. It's war, no time for fun anymore. Cinemas were closed prompting George Bernard Shaw to write to the Times in anger. We have hundreds of thousands of evacuated children to be kept out of mischief and traffic dangers. Are there to be no pictures for them? What agent of Chancellor Hitler is it who has suggested we should all cower in darkness and terror for the duration? So it wasn't long before the cinemas reopened and the public could see morale-boosting films like 1939's blockbuster Gone with the Wind all about a woman, after all, refusing to be defeated by war. Speaking of Vivian Lee, who played Scarlett O'Hara, she went on to make That Hamilton Woman in 1941, the love story between Lady Hamilton and Nelson. 
And of course, it covered the victory at Trafalgar and was meant to be not just a swooning love story, but a British morale booster. And it was said to be Churchill's favourite film. So the value of cinema was very quickly recognised and the public were soon ushered back in to have the Blitz spirit stoked up. Likewise with theatres. They were closed, but had their doors open again in a few weeks. And, well, we can hardly call it art, although some will disagree, spectator sports like football also suffered. All football stadiums were closed on the outbreak of war, but had reopened by the end of September, although there was a limit placed on how many people could enter the ground. In fact, some clubs lost their grounds completely, as they were requisitioned for government use. Arsenal saw their ground taken over as an air raid precaution centre, and Swindon Town saw theirs used as a prisoner of war camp. Aston Villa got off lightly. They only had to surrender one of their stands for use as an air raid shelter. But gradually, as I say, most cinemas and theatres quickly reopened, and by 1942 the crowd restrictions were lifted in football grounds. So the public were allowed to have fun again, Because anyone with half a brain could see that if you want to win a war, you have to maintain the population's morale. It's not simply about who has more tanks and guns and bombs. You need the population behind you and you need the population to have high morale. And the war on the home front in Britain had seen so many pleasures stripped away from the population. The most obvious and the most basic, perhaps, was good food. As rationing began to bite... Treats and luxuries, like a a nice bit of steak or a yummy bar of chocolate, were almost unheard of. Nice clothes, when they wore out, had to be replaced with dull utility fashion. And as we all know, most women couldn't even find a nice pair of stockings, which is why some of them famously drew a black line up the back of their legs to mimic the stocking seam. So with nothing nice to buy or eat or indulge in, it would have been a step too far to deny the population their sports and their films and their music. After all, where's the harm? If the siren began to wail when everyone was in the cinema or in the theatre, then they all knew the drill. Head for the nearest shelter, just as you would if the siren went off while you were at work or at home. So this type of art was allowed to go on relatively unhindered throughout the war. Cinema, sport, theatre, music. Because everyone can scatter if they need to. Grab your gas mask and run. But what about the stuff you can't grab and run with? What about priceless paintings and marble statues, delicate manuscripts and ancient Egyptian treasures in the British Museum? You can't grab them and run and it would be too much of a risk to leave them on display in the whopping great target of central London. You could almost sense the Luftwaffe eyeing Britain's treasures from the sky, desperate to punch a great hole in those symbols of our civilization. There was even a rumour that big Hermann Goring had a shopping list of paintings he wanted pinched from Britain's galleries and brought to Germany after the Nazis had conquered us. So there was no option but to pack up our art and get it out of the cities.
The original plan was to make use of Britain's fine old country estates and mansions. They would be used to store all these old treasures and artworks. Not only were these buildings solid and sturdy and safely out in the countryside, but they were owned and occupied by the right sort of people, the upper classes, and they could surely be trusted with the nation's treasures. And while it might have been an honour to be asked to store the nation's art and wealth, it wasn't always convenient. The Duke of Buccleuch saw much of the British Museum deposited in his estate in Northamptonshire. According to Juliet Barker's book, Wartime Britain, the priceless coin collection was just dumped on his kitchen floor, and he grumbled that one was forever tripping over Egyptian mummies during the blackout. But despite any inconvenience, the director of the National Gallery, Kenneth Clark, said, England is full of large houses, and I thought it'd be easy to find a proprietor who would have welcomed the quiet occupation of his house by famous pictures, rather than rowdy and incontinent evacuees. Originally, it was considered sufficient to place the art in houses in the southwest of England or in Wales. After all, that was still relatively close to London, but was also out with the range of German bombers. But after the fall of France, that invisible line of safety vanished. Now, with the Luftwaffe able to come at us from just across the Channel, nowhere in Britain was safe from Blitzkrieg. And, in some frights, Kenneth Clark asked Churchill if they might consider sending artworks to safety in Canada. Churchill's reply was perhaps to be expected. He wrote, Bury them in the bowels of the earth, but not a picture shall leave this island. So the solution was, put them underground. There were several limestone quarries in Wiltshire, which had been requisitioned by the government as underground aircraft factories. Space was made here, and as of 1942, the ground beneath Wiltshire became stuffed with treasure from the British Museum, as well as the famous Kitty Hawk aeroplane on loan from America, some 13th century glass from Salisbury Cathedral, books from the Bodleian Library and paintings from the National Portrait Gallery. These details again coming from Juliet Barker's wonderful book. More underground space was found in Wales, in disused slate mines called Manod Quarry, and this housed paintings from the National Gallery, Hampton Court, Buckingham Palace and Windsor Castle. And if you shudder at the idea of such treasure being put in quarries and mines, would you rather they sat in a prison? That's where manuscripts like the Doomsday Book and the Magna Carta went, to the women's wing of Shipton Mallet Prison. What about those galleries who couldn't find safe space underground for their artworks? Well, they sent them on tour around the country, showing them off at town halls, staff canteens, local schools and small galleries. This meant they were dispersed, so a direct hit on their home gallery wouldn't wipe everything out. So what happened in the Cold War? There was no point this time around in considering nice country houses. If the Luftwaffe could put every area of Britain at risk, then it's obvious that Soviet bombers, Soviet subs, Soviet missiles could do likewise. 
So the plan to protect the nation's treasures in the event of nuclear attack was go straight back underground. The plan was called Operation Methodical and it was similar to the Second World War's plan in that it was get the good stuff out of London and get it beneath the ground. And again, it was Manard Quarry in Wales and the limestone quarries near Bradford-on-Avon in Wiltshire which would be used. Of course, a big problem with the Cold War evacuation of artwork or of people is when do you initiate it? It was quite clear in the Second World War because we all knew when the war had started. There was a very specific date and time when it was declared. But as we know, the start and end of the Cold War is far more slippery and tenuous and hard to define. Are we at war? Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe it'll happen tomorrow. Maybe never. And if it becomes obvious that the attack is anticipated, but it's still not quite definite, are we inviting it, summoning it forth, by instigating things like Operation Methodical? If the enemy sees us evacuate our treasures, will it send the message to them that war is inevitable? Will it send the message that we're scared? Will it flatten the morale and hopes of the population? Will it cause panic? And is all that worth it, just for the safety of paintings and statuary and old books? Well, if not, if we say we don't care about preserving our history, culture, civilization, then what are we fighting for? Without a country's culture and context, surely it becomes just a scrap of geography, a patch of land. Operation Methodical said that the treasures were to be escorted from their respective galleries out to the bunkers by the military. I'll quote here from the archive documents from 1964. It says, Arrangements have been made for these art treasures to be loaded onto pantechnicons at certain national institutions and for them to be transported to places of safety in the provinces. Um, I admit I had to look up Pantechnicon in the dictionary and it's simply a removal van or furniture van. It says, Military escorts are to be provided to protect the treasures during loading, transit and unloading. The Ministry of Public Buildings and Works will provide 11 Pantechnicons with drivers. On receipt of orders from the Treasury, these will be sent by the Ministry to the following points for loading. Two to the National Gallery, two to the Tate Gallery, two to the Wallace Collection, two to the British Museum, two to the Victoria and Albert Museum, one to St James's Palace for the Royal Collection. After partial loading at Buckingham Palace, the vehicle may have to go to Windsor to load some of the treasures from there. Manod's quarry would then receive the vans from the National Gallery, Tate and the Royal Collection, and Westwood Quarry in Wiltshire would receive vans from the British Museum, Victoria and Albert and the Wallace Collection. Whatever your views are on protecting and defending the nation's artworks, it's worth pointing out that Peter Hennessy, in his book The Secret State, says the Ministry of Transport complained about this generous allocation of resources to the galleries and palaces. Giving them this military escort and 11 pantechnicons would, they said, deny the Ministry of Health the transport they needed 
to get supplies dispersed to safe areas. So it's the same old problem. Why bother saving the art and the treasure from nuclear attack if your population won't survive? The art might be underground in shelter, but most of the people won't be. So what's the point? Who are you saving it for? Art doesn't exist without someone to appreciate it. But a country doesn't exist without its art and its historical artefacts. So you have a chain here. The country needs the art in order to exist, but the art needs the people in order to exist in any kind of meaningful way. And the people need shelter to exist. But the available shelter is going to the protection of the treasures, not the people, without whom the treasure will have no significance. And so we're left with yet another reason why thinking too closely about nuclear war can drive you mad. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting me with a donation each month for which you'll receive nuclear-themed rewards such as postcards from all the nuclear sites that I visit and a mention in the acknowledgement section of my nuclear history book when it's published. Take a look at patreon.com forward slash atomic hobo or if you'd rather make a one-off donation, you can do so by visiting paypal.me forward slash atomic hobo. All donations, of course, are gratefully received and help support all my nuclear work. Thank you to everyone who contributes, and let me give a special shout-out to the following patrons. Lucy Stegerwald, Arika, Jonathan Abelins, Peter Mars, Jacqueline Brick, Andrew Key, Sam Marco, Richard Grundy, Dave Marks, Alan Christie, Helen McHale, Ewan McLeod, Douglas Greenshields, Colin McGee, Sean Milson, Brian Outlaw, Damian Ryan, Peter Lee, Christopher Creva, Richard Lewis, Adam Spink, Ian McCulloch, Linda Woolnough, Kevin Butter, Simon Allison, Sean Judge, Paul Maxwell Walters, Wynne Grant, Ben Capper, Mary Freer, Phil Catling, Steve Sace, Claire Brennan, Paul Jonathan Viner, and Gordy McNair. Remember, you can find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell on Facebook under Nuclear Britain or through my website juliemcdowell.com The cool electronic music you're listening to has been provided by a band called Ix. You can find them on Twitter at IxBandUK That's I-X-Band-UK Thank you all for listening and I'll be back next week.